This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Hugh Sinclair is the author of a new book titled Confessions of a Microfinance Heretic, How Microlending Lost Its Way and Betrayed the Poor, in which he debunks the image of microfinance as a do-good industry committed to helping poor people create sustainable businesses. Instead, he documents rampant corruption, extortionist interest rates, cover-ups, and a lack of transparency that he says characterize much of the microfinance industry today. Sinclair, who has worked in the field with global organizations, banks, and funds for more than a decade, spoke with Knowledge at Wharton about his book, The Problems Microfinance Continues to Face, and Some Solutions for Moving Forward. Hugh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'd like to start out asking you why you wrote this book. I wrote this book because there is a lot of misinformation and uh, just misunderstanding about what really is going on in microfinance. Um, and. On the one hand, we hear of rumors of exploitation of the poor, but on the other hand, good, well-meaning Americans and Europeans are donating and investing their money in this sector without really knowing what's going on. And eventually, I just, I was, I've been in the sector for so long and seen so many things that were going wrong with it that could be done so much better that eventually I just decided I have to, I have to come clean and actually explain really what's happening. Reading this book, it seems that the problems of microfinance are so entrenched by now that they can't be fixed, especially the corruption that seems so pervasive. Are the problems indeed intractable? Well, I don't think so. There are a number of good institutions out there. Uh, I would say certainly the minority, but there are good institutions uh, in the field. There are good peer-to-peer lending platforms. There are even possibly some good microfinance investment funds. They are rare. I don't think it's intractable, but I think that we have to begin by acknowledging that there is a serious problem. We have to do something about the appalling, woefully low level of transparency in the sector. We need to regulate it much more tightly, both in developing countries and in developed countries where a lot of the money is sourced. And I think we need to refocus our efforts on the poor. This is about the poor, not profit. You quote someone from the microfinance community in your book as saying that 9 out of 10 microfinance loans are for consumption rather than to start an enterprise or even to buy food or clothing. Doesn't that undermine the whole basis, the whole kind of theoretical underpinning of microfinance? It does, totally. That was, and it was by a noted uh, expert, John Hatch, from uh, Finca, one of the biggest networks uh, in the world, in the Harvard Business Review. Yes, it does totally undermine it. Now, we don't, no one really knows because there is no good data on how much is used for consumption and investment. Um, but estimates, very rarely do you hear anyone saying it's under 50%. Uh, John Hatch suggests it's 90%. I, I have no idea where it is within that range. But, uh, yeah, a large amount of money just is, is used for nothing other than to buy a new TV or to buy some new clothes. And that, in, in addition to that, you have to take into account the amount of money that is just used simply to repay off other loans. Right. Poor people borrow from one bank at a high interest rate and then borrow from another bank to pay off the first bank, and then they get into serious debt. You also talk about mission drift, the idea that microfinance has forgotten its mission to serve the poor and really exists to make a profit for the officials running the programs. Is this common? Yes, it is, and it's, it's increasingly so. What happened sort of at the end of uh, the 90s and this century was the era of so-called commercialization when large banks and profit-motivated 
specialist investment fund piled into the microfinance sector, aware of potentially vast profits at the bottom of the pyramid. We saw the first big $100 million, $200 million IPOs with uh, massive payouts to individual people. Um, mission drift is a very, very serious problem, and it has, it has been since, since the beginning of the microfinance movement, but um, it's, really, it's really accelerated in the last years. But there are people who are very well aware of it. There are institutions who actively manage mission drift. It's something that has to be actively managed. You have to constantly be aware of it and fighting it every day to stop yourself drifting. But yeah, it is, it is pervasive. That gets to the whole question of the role of big banks and investment funds in all of this. It sounds like the banks, the investors, the ratings agencies, even the MFIs are almost in a conspiracy to enrich themselves and hide what's really going on, at least with some of the programs that you cite. Or is this too harsh? Um, I think that's too harsh, particularly with the rating agencies. Actually, I think the, the specialized rating agencies for the microfinance sector are, if anything, something that, w that other rating agencies could learn from because they've demonstrated on a number of occasions that they're not only predictive, but they're extremely accurate, often more accurate than the information that the microfinance investment funds themselves know. But it is true, when you, when you think of the financial crisis that has happened in Europe and the United States recently, involving you know, large, supposedly regulated Wall Street banks and, and these sorts of profit-motivated institutions. You look at the mess that they've caused in the developed world. Is it really much of a surprise that if you take these same players and you place them into a totally unregulated market with much more vulnerable clients, without the protection of a regulator, you know, acting in the best interest of its citizens, is it really much of a surprise that things have gone wrong? Right, but why are people so reluctant to speak out against what's going on in the industry? Well, we shouldn't forget that it's currently it's estimated it's about a $70 billion industry. And if you think of the typical interest rates that, that the poor are paying, which on average may be something around 50%, maybe a little bit lower, you're looking at $30 billion a year being paid in interest. So this is a vast sum of money. This has now attracted the big players and they have, uh, they have valuable investments to protect. They have valuable interests. And we've so far reached 200 million clients. And the mantra of the day is, let's go for the next billion. Mm -hmm. So there is a huge amount of money to be made there. And people are very reluctant to admit even the slightest problems in the sector. This is one of the, one of the key problems that I, I see is, it's not how do we start fixing it. It's we can't even really acknowledge that there's a problem. Yes, throughout your book, you offer several examples of corrupt MFIs and also examples of good ones. But a particularly corrupt one is the Lift Above Poverty Organization, LAPO, in Nigeria, which you describe as, and I'm quoting here, quote, totally dysfunctional, uncontrolled, unmanaged chaos run by people with limited understanding of the absolute basics of finance and charging the poor astonishingly high interest rates, end quote. In fact, interest rates in excess of 100%. But you also offer examples of good ones in places like Mongolia, a country that you say has one of the best microfinance programs you've seen. So how big is this gap between a good MFI and a bad one, and what is the relation between the two of them? Um, the difference is as extreme as what Muhammad Yunus said when, when he uh, won the Nobel Prize. You know, he wanted to set up a good, affordable microfinance institutions that would enable the poor to work their way out of poverty with fair price credit. That is great. 
he said that he wished to replace the evil moneylenders. What has happened, and what he subsequently said, is I could never believe that the microfinance institutions have become the very same evil, micro, uh, evil uh, moneylenders that we attempted to replace. This is the problem, is you have a huge variety going from, going from very ethical, good institutions right the way up to, to the loan sharks. And the average person in the United States and Europe has no real way of distinguishing between the two. Not only that, but there are warped incentives in the investment community because the moneylender operations are actually a lot more profitable. There is, a, there is an incentive, a, a strong temptation to be attracted towards these institutions, which are obviously growing much faster, have much higher profitability, much higher return on equity. If you can buy shares in them, then you can have serious returns on your investment. Um, and this, this temptation, this lure, is attracting a lot of the capital towards the moneylender operations, the more loan shock operations. But the average man on the street has no way of knowing about this. That is one of the problems. There is a complete lack of transparency. You mentioned Muhammad Yunus. In your book, you take on some of the most revered names in the field, like Yunus, like Grameen Foundation, Kiva, the Calvert Foundation. What are their roles in this? Well, um, in the case of Kiva and uh, Calvert Foundation, they were both investors in this institution, LAPO. Kiva provided $5 million before it eventually pulled out of LAPO. Calvert had invested in LAPO uh, somewhat, I suspect, by mistake uh, on, on the basis of incomplete information provided to it by its own advisors. But then we've also got you know, Deutsche Bank, Citibank, Standard Chartered, um, and then in Europe, the big institutions such as Blue Orchard Responsibility, uh, Triple Jump, Oxfam Nova, ASN Bank. Uh, the reason why I zoom in on these is because what's interesting is that they had all invested in this specific institution, Grameen Foundation included. Now, Muhammad Yunus is, does, doesn't make direct investments himself, and he is generally an advocate for fair-priced ethical microfinance. The unfortunate um, problem with Muhammad Yunus is that while he lectures you know, extensively on the evils of high interest rates, the Grameen Foundation, on, which, on, on whose board he sits, uh, was in fact one of the investors in Lapa, one of the earliest investors, and guarantor to the loans from Citibank and Standard Chartered. So there's something of a paradox there. Then, when all the scandals about LAPO emerged, um, particularly when they, when they reached the front page of the New York Times, um, shortly after that, the Schwab Foundation actually gave LAPO an award for you know, the Entrepreneur of the Year or something in Africa. And, um, of course, Mohamed Yunus sits on the board of the Schwab Foundation and is really the only person who has, uh, has good knowledge of microfinance. So he has a, there's a sort of ambiguity as to exactly what his role is in all this. But in general, he aspires towards a very good ethical form of microfinance. But there are a few, a few questions still to ask about his role, particularly with regards to LAPA. But overall, in terms of his reputation, he's one of the good guys. Is that fair to say? Yes. I mean, I think, I think he set out with extremely good intentions. Um, there was a documentary uh, released by the Danish journalist Tom Heinemann, which questioned that and created a bit of an uproar um, and then inspired the backlash uh, of PR companies such as Burson Marsteller to do a, a smear campaign on, on, Mr., on Mr. Heinemann's documentary. So there are a couple of question marks about, about certain transactions that took place between the Norwegian government and, and Grameen Bank in the 1990s, which were revealed by 
in the documentary, but in general, he is one of the good guys. And the way that I portray him in the book is, is, is the good shepherd who lost control of his flock. In that, I, I think that actually he's probably extremely disappointed with a lot of the microfinance that he sees going on around him, but is powerless ready to do much about it. Some people might accuse you of trying to capitalize on the many problems that microfinance faces by writing this book and suggest that maybe you've become part of the problem. I'm going to infer that you don't see it that way. No, I don't see it that way. I, I see it as, as, a, as a case of, you know, huge injustice, because on the one hand, you've got poor people who really very seriously are suffering at the hands of these banks, and in the worst cases are committing suicide. And I've spent the last decade in microfinance, I've spent seven of those years working in developing countries. So I see this firsthand, and it just really irks me when I see these people desperately trying to work their way out of poverty. And, you know, you just, I sometimes I just think, you know, why bother? I mean, you honestly think you're going to be able to repay that loan at those interest rates and get out of poverty? On the other hand, there is this hype, this myth, this kind of aura around the sector that leads well-meaning Americans and Europeans to donate their own money or to invest their own money, often at very subsidized interest rates, to support what they see as a meaningful cause. And they themselves are also being abused. And it just, no one was speaking out about it. And I just, it, it, it drove me up the wall to the point where I just said, you know, I can't go on like this. We have to get this information, not amongst the elite, amongst the practitioners and the academics, but we have to get this information to the man on the street so that they can vote with their wallets and say, you know what, if I'm going to give you money for your, your, microfinance invest, your microfinance institution, I want to know the following things. You know, how are you looking after your clients? What interest rates do you charge? And what regulatory protection do you afford your clients? And, and empower the people, the people who are ultimately providing the fuel for this fire. Empower them to know how to make sure that their money is being used wisely and for the benefit of the poor. It's what the ultimate investors want to do, and it's what the poor want to benefit from. The problem is, is we've got people in the middle who have a different set of incentives. Your book isn't just a diatribe. You do offer a number of solutions to the problems you analyze. So how can they be fixed? If you had to pick maybe the three single biggest problems this industry faces, what would you do about them? Well, first of all, acknowledge the problem. Secondly, put the poor back into the center of the equation. It's, it's ridiculous that we've allowed profit to become the, the, the mantra of the entire sector. And, you know, the poor are, are almost, a, they play a cameo role in microfinance now. Um, and I think the, the two best things that we can do is really focus on improving the transparency of the sector. So what actually is happening in the, in, in the field? What, what information can we, can we find out about our, the microfinance investment funds? They need to publish more information about what they're actually doing so people can make an informed decision. But ultimately, I think that what we need to do is regulate. Um, we know that regulation hasn't worked entirely smoothly, but is the alternative zero regulation? I think that, you know, to a great extent, explains the atrocities that we've seen in countries such as India, in Nicaragua, and in a series of countries, that if you just allow unbridled, profit-motivated, totally unregulated, uh, economic capital flows when the poor clients are vulnerable and not financially literate it's going to end in tears and it has ended in tears but we keep on doing it we just go from one to the next to the next and it has to stop you said in your book that in 2012 which is now you'd probably be working with some of the ethical funds and their decent mfis are you yes 
I am. I'm working with uh, a small a small group of funds, uh, two funds and one bank. And I have to say that uh, the list is every year shorter and shorter and shorter. But these institutions do exist. And, you know, the, my sincere hope is that as a result of improved awareness of what's going on in the sector, that we can build on the good institutions and help them to grow and to actually take a more central role and limit and regulate some of these bad institutions. The problem is that profit-motivated capital tends to be much more attracted to the less ethical institutions because they are much more profitable. So unless we change it from the top down, the problem with the, the good institutions is that they struggle to raise capital, they struggle to grow because they are not as attractive to a Wall Street investor as someone who's got a return on equity of 40%. The problem is, is we know where that return on equity comes from. There's one source, the poor. Do you feel that you're going to be excluded from the microfinance sector? I understand that you're working now, but do you think that your future lies in this industry, or have you become a pariah? At one point in the book, you say that the microfinance community often resembles a religious cult and that criticism is considered heresy and isn't tolerated. And in fact, that's reflected in the title of your book, Confessions of a Microfinance Heretic. So what do you think is going to be the response from people who consider you a heretic? Well, I've already been excluded from, you know, I don't know the percentage, but 90% of the sector already. I'm never invited to conferences anymore. Um, it's, uh, there's no point bidding on projects because uh, I'll be rejected and, at the outset. Um, and w what's more worrying is that I know other people. I'm not the only person who has spoken out about microfinance, and it is the standard operating procedure, smear campaigns. You don't get invited to speak. You can't present papers. You don't win bids. You can't, you're, you, yeah, you do get excluded. But the alternative is, well, what do you do? Do you just play the game? I've been playing the game for 10 years, and at a certain point, I just said, you know, I can't, I can't keep on doing this with a clear conscience. It's just totally unfair on the poor and on the, the, the well-meaning people who are contributing their money. We've received threatening phone calls. I'm now, you know, there is a, a, a campaign starting already, which, which we're aware of. Um, yeah, it's going to be a mess. But my alternative is to keep quiet, and I'm no longer prepared to do that. And what I'm seeing now, which is, it fills me with hope, is that uh, from, often from some surprising places, I am actually getting quite a bit of support. More people are coming out and, and saying, you know, hmm, yeah, there are some good points in this book, or of their own independent research. Academics are now having the courage to come out and say, what about child labor in microfinance? What about these extortionate interest rates? So I think we're seeing something of a rediscovery of the sector. But it's going to be a battle, and we are still the small minority. But I'm optimistic. I think that, I think that you know, maybe we're at the dawn of a new era. Who knows? So you don't regret having written this book? Um, not, not so far. Um, <laughs> Um, it, there's, been some, there's been some sleepless nights, I have to say, when you get a, a threatening phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning from an anonymous person. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah at some points I have thought, you know, was this the wisest decision? But um, no, I'm happy, I'm happy that I've done it, and I just hope that people will, will read it and understand it and take action on the basis of it. And that, if we can, if we can get the message to the people who are voting with their wallets, then I think that we can really have a huge impact because potentially this could be a powerful tool for poverty eradication. Unfortunately, it's been hijacked. We've just got to, we've got to take it over again. Hugh, thanks for talking with us. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, 
please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.